Hey, everyone. I'm so excited to announce that the Steroid is CEO podcast has joined forces with Future Commerce, the number one podcast in e-commerce. We're combining forces to bring you the most insightful and relevant content in the world of tech and entrepreneurship. We're launching new content every week starting in July, and I don't want you to miss it. So subscribe to Steroid is CEO right now on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and let's take your business to the next level. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 13 of the Steroid to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I sat down with co-founder and CEO of Outer, Jake Liu. Named the number one fastest growing direct-to-consumer company in the U.S. for Q2 this year by Business Insider, Outer is a venture-backed outdoor furniture brand based in Santa Monica on a mission to build a community around outdoor living one backyard at a time. In this episode, you'll hear about Jake's childhood and moving from China to Alabama, how he faced a tough fallout with his first startup's co-founders, and explains how a visit with his cousin sparked the idea for Outer. He shares with us his experience in building a direct-to-consumer company and how instead of opening stores, he created the novel Neighborhood Showroom Concept. Tune in to hear all about this and more. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, Jake, it's so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Lee. We've known each other for a while now. I, I was trying to think back when we met at Launchpad when you were building ProspectWise. When was that? What, 2013? Yeah, definitely in the pre-COVID era, right? Like, right. what do you call it? Like PC? <laughs> yeah, 2013 was when I joined uh, Launchpad. What year were you? When did you join? Well, I was there with uh, Sam as the associate. Right. So I right. was, uh, I think it was that class with you and Ariel. I think it was like, maybe fall 2013 or maybe because i was there twice i'm like the bad oh, student I... that's like <laughs> can't graduate right so like i built two businesses there well iterated you know evolved there but i wonder if it was like the batch five or six or like six or seven you know well which one was prospect wise the latter one the okay. latest one and that they was no the longer one exist. They, they no longer exist maybe because that's, you know, we were probably one of the reasons that caused this downfall. It's <laughs> funny. So let's start from the very beginning. Um, I'm excited to hear your story. Where are you from? Let's kind of start from way back, early days. Way back. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was born in this little town in China. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's actually a few hours south of Shanghai. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, in 1989. <laughs> um, and um, I was born to uh, 
a family of, so my dad was an electrical, electrical engineer. Um, my mom has always been kind of like an entrepreneur. Like, yeah, I think she was running a restaurant, she had a boutique store, and she's just like super entrepreneurial. And I guess from years one to seven, or one to six, or something like that, I was in that little town. Um, and then moved to uh, Shenzhen, which is, you know, a lot of people know about that city because it's kind of like the silicon capital of the world. It's, it's known for, you know, like Tencent and like all the hardware, you know, Xiaomi and like all the startups over there. It's the, so coming from kind of like a little town of maybe like tens of thousands of people. I mean, that's like a little town in, in China standards, right? Yeah. To like Shenzhen, which is actually the fastest growing city in human history, uh, apparently. Wow. Um, you know, and so that was quite a shock. And if that wasn't enough, you know, uh, coming from Shenzhen and I'm moving to Huntsville, Alabama, you know, going from... Uh, <laughs> How did that happen? So my, my dad's um, in aerospace. So again, he's in like electrical uh, engineer. And then um, he uh, graduated from a really, really kind of like the MIT of China, Zhejiang University. And then uh, he basically immigrated to Alabama because of the aerospace industry. Uh, Huntsville, Alabama is actually, uh, you know, NASA uh, Marshall Space Flight Center is over there, Space Camp. Everyone probably knows that movie. It was filmed yeah. there. It's like a huge aerospace town. So he was basically recruited there to work in that industry. That's awesome. That that must have been a huge move for you. How old were you at the time? I was 13. And you know what? I Shenzhen is kind of like, nowadays, they're kind of like Manhattan on steroids. You know, it's like sky, skyscrapers everywhere and, you know, like just ultra modern. But even back then, like 2002 or 2000, yeah, 2002, it was already a very modern city. Um, a lot of skyscrapers, some of the tallest buildings in China at the time. And then I remember landing in Huntsville. It was like at night and there were like no buildings, no lights to be seen. I'm like, where am I going? <laughs> like like, this black. is not America, I imagine. It's pitch black. <laughs> where you is know, everyone? Um, tiny airport and... You know, and uh, I was like, this is not America that was promised, you know. Um, <laughs> Disappointed already. Because, <laughs> you know, you always watch, you know, like Hollywood is pervasive in, right. in China, right? Like, so you see all these like skyscrapers in New York and LA, right? Like, uh, you're San like, Francisco. where are the movie stars? Where are the movie stars? <laughs> where are the buildings? Where are the lights? You know? Um, yeah. So that was a, definitely a shock. Um, yeah. So, so that was the 2000 and uh, yeah, 2002. Awesome. And so what was it like in Alabama as a 13-year-old? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think I started as a seventh grader, um, went to a school that's named after, I mean, because it's an aerospace town, so it's called, called Challenger Middle School because it's Challenger, the, 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 <laughs> the, 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 the space shuttle, uh -huh. right? Um, and then my high school's name is Grissom, which is named after uh, Virgil I. Grissom, which is an uh, astronaut that... Uh, unfortunately died in a, in a, in a, you know, accident. Um, so like everything's named after, you know, spacecraft <laughs> and astronauts. <laughs> um, that was, that was fun. Um, you know, Huntsville is a very unique city. Um, you know, I've, I'm actually surprised by, you know, how well known it is when I talk to some people, you know, mm. apparently it has the most PhD per capita in the U.S., Wow. And so that, you know, that's surprising. Literally, you run into rocket scientists when you're walking down the street, right? Like, because that's the industry. And so it is a very, um, I would say it's a very progressive city. It's like on the northern edge of Alabama, like bordering Tennessee. It's like 
we would just go to Nashville for, for fun or for whatever, right? It's like an, an hour and a half drive. Um, so it's a um, unique town uh, in the deep south. Uh, let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, and growing up, yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been great. I mean, you know, a middle school, high school, I made a lot of friends. Um, not a lot of diversity. I mean, like, I think there are, you know, like there are probably like two, three other Asian kids in my class, you know, in, yeah. in both middle school and high school. So that felt like, you know, um, but I didn't, I mean, it's a little kid. Like I didn't really feel out of place. I didn't really think a lot about, you know, um, you know, races or anything like that. It was really just the language barrier because, mm. you know, even though I learned English, um, Shenzhen borders Hong Kong. So like, you know, I, I learned uh, English, but English, English, like British English. Right. right? So like the most... I think the phrase that I use the most is uh, I can't speak English, right? In the middle of Alabama, <laughs> right? Like with this Asian kid with British accent. Uh, <laughs> like, who is They're like, who person? is this kid? <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I would uh, borrow uh, rubber instead of uh, uh, eraser, which, you know, I would be like, where's the, where's the rubbish bin <laughs> instead of the trash right. can? Right? Right. It's like, and so that was, uh, that was funny. Um, I had this like little, translator it's like a digital this was like pre you know smartphone era and yeah um, and so i have this like little digital translator that's like translates words and you know all little kids just typing curse you know cuss words and like you know <laughs> seeing how, how it's spoken in chinese so th- that was fun times but it was, it was yeah. pleasant it was pleasant yeah it was, it was great did you do you have any siblings i don't so i am i guess a victim of the uh one child single child policy in china <laughs> Oh, okay. Um, because, you know, in China, until very recently, you can only have one child, uh, hence yeah. the name. Um, now they can have two. Um, but yeah, so I don't have any siblings. I've always wanted one. Hey, real quick, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Future Commerce Insiders. Insiders is a weekly newsletter that brings you the information you need at the intersection of technology, entrepreneurship, and commerce. If you're a tech founder or an operator at an e-commerce brand, Insiders is purpose-built just for you. Commerce connects all of us, and entrepreneurship gives anyone the opportunity for economic advancement. So, commerce entrepreneurship has the ability to change the world. Want to join us? Do it right now at futurecommerce.fm. That's futurecommerce.fm. When you were a kid, were you entrepreneurial in any way? Did you kind of notice that mm. early on, that that was something you were interested in? Did you maybe see that from your mom and be like, that's what I want to do? I would say I was quite inventive in the sense that, you know, uh, as a little kid, I loved I mean, toys, right? Like every, every little kid loves toys, but like I would build kind of like a, like a, I remember like using like a lot of styrofoam to kind of build like a little, like a life-size robot, right? Just like blocks and like, just when I was like four or five years old and like building a little like rocket with a lot of plastic bottles and like stuff like that, like as a very young, young kid, but I guess my entrepreneurial side, yeah, I mean, it was kind of like influenced by my mother, but yeah, I think my first business was actually in high school where I would just buy and sell computer hardware because I, I enjoy building computers and uh, video games and stuff like that. And so I would just buy some stuff and sell it on eBay. That was kind of like the first business that was like for summer cash. And then the first kind of, um, uh, I, I, I then built an IT business. This is actually pretty fun. Um, in the last year of my high school, uh, this was 2006 or 2007, 
this was before kind of like the drop cam era or like before iPhone became really popularized, right? But I, I knew how to program a little bit at the time. So I actually went to Costco and bought like these um, Samsung uh, camcorder, like the, the, the wired cameras, right? And then you actually hook it to a computer, a Linux, Linux computer. I would actually code this thing where you can stream your video to your uh, Android phone at the time, you know, like iPhone wasn't that, that open. And so then I sold that. So I would buy it for like $400 from Costco and software is my own. So I would then install it for like restaurants. My mom's in restaurants again, like she, like, uh, she, she, uh, she quickly became her, her, uh, like a restaurateur in Huntsville. And then like, I would install basically these camera systems for her friends and colleagues in the restaurant industry. And I would make like $4,000, you know, per job. Wow. As, like, as a high school kid, that's pretty as good. A, as a high school kid. And that yeah. was pretty amazing. I think I joke that I actually made more money you know, in that summer or whatever, then I did build my first startup ever, you know? And so like, um, it was pretty good. I was like going to like the nearby States and then just installing security systems for, uh, for restaurants. And it was, that's how I basically kind of afforded my first house in, 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 uh, in college. Uh, but Huntsville, I mean like Alabama houses are really cheap, just in case you didn't know. It's not yeah. like LA. Yeah. Right. Right. So where did you go to college? I went to a local university called University of Alabama in Huntsville. Um, so a lot of people know University of Alabama by uh, football, Crimson Tide. So we are kind of like the nerdier engineering school division. Uh, so Huntsville is about engineering. It's a research university. has a really good graduate program for engineering. Um, I think Superconductor was kind of like research and developed there. And uh, um but anyway, so yeah, I just went to uh, UAH uh, and I, I studied uh, computer engineering. Wow, that's awesome. So when you were studying in school, did you have any internships or were you still working on that high school business at the time or what were you working on? Yeah, I mean, it's always like the high school business also is a little bit like cash on the side. It's, it's always nice, right? And um, But my first real internship was at a company called Atran. And I was a computer engineer for them. Uh, development intern, I think, was the title. Uh, but they are a uh, telecom uh, company. They basically build uh, basically infrastructure, like enterprise uh, hardware solutions for routers and modems and like, you know, kind of like in that, in that world. Kind of like a Cisco, like a smaller version of Cisco. They're a public company. They're really nice. And it was kind of like a, you know, badge of honor to work for that company uh, in, in a small town, right? And so that was my first internship. And uh, they called it co-op, I guess. It wasn't even the internship where I would go to school and work at the same time. That was my first hands-on kind of like software engineering um, job. Awesome. And so when you graduated, what did you do? What was your first job out of college? Well, so I had another interesting internship last year, uh, like I guess the year before I graduated, that's how I moved to LA. I, I guess like the first time I kind of experienced LA was, uh, I, again, I'm a huge video game fan growing up and uh, I got obsessed with a video game called uh, in 2009 called League of Legends. Um, it, it was just like starting to blow up, and I would actually I actually had a, held an IT job in the, at the university too. You know, just like fixing computers at, at the library for teachers and students. Um, and um, uh, and uh, we would basically instead of like you know working on tickets, we would just like sneak in the game or two like during during you know. Because uh, we were in front of a computer all the time, and yeah. so I loved the computer game. And they were hiring for interns, and I was like, "Man, I, I just got to try for this," you know. And so, lo and behold, I actually got the job. And so, like in the last year of my college, I actually got a internship at Riot Games, kind of like my 
my, my dream job, you know? Um, wow. This was 2012, I think, uh, summer of that, I had July or June. And uh, when I joined, I think the company had less than 200 people. You know, now they have like thousands of people globally and obviously one of the largest, not the largest video game company in the world. But back then it was just like, you know, this dinky little game. Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of getting popular, <laughs> but, it, but, but they were launching in China at the time. So they wanted someone that can speak Mandarin. And cool. um, I did. And so um, when I joined the international team, maybe had like seven people, right? And like, I was one of the few that could speak Mandarin. So I worked with the Tencent, which, you know, eventually acquired the riots, you know, for an absorbent amount of money, I'm sure. Um, but um, at the time I was working uh, on League of Legends and trying to, you know, help them release in China, which turned out to be their largest uh, market, uh, even to this day. And so that was a great experience. That's where I kind of got to know the LA ecosystem a little bit. I remember like attending demo days. Um, I still remember like Dollar Shave Club and like, you know, Michael Dubin pitching on stage in front of like, you know, a panel of like Android investors and, you know, yeah. so those were, yeah. And that's when I kind of got to meet um, uh, the folks over at Amplify who are still around and, you know, thriving today. Um, yeah. Jeff Solomon and um, uh, yeah, so that's kind of how I kind of started to know the LA ecosystem um, yeah. before I graduated. And 2012 was such a great time. It still is, but back in, that was really, I think, when things were taking off in LA tech. It was 2012, 2013, like such an interesting time. So many great companies started at that time that are still I think around. So. Something about that year, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I graduated that year and I was, you know, deciding between going back to Riot. I got an offer letter from them. Looking back, it's a lot of stock and, you know, they, they export a lot of money. I still kind of like, hmm, what could have been? But, but <laughs> I know, I, I, you know, I'm not one that can work at a company like that for longer than maybe like two, two years, right? So I wouldn't have gotten best in the stock anyway. So it's probably moot. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I was building my own little software to help my mom's restaurant um, um, to get her customer feedback because she also had a language barrier. And so, like, how do we get, you know, genuine customer feedback without having people to go to Yelp to rant about it, right? And so um, that was the software that eventually got picked up by Amplify. So I was in, you know, in touch with the Amplify folks and they're like, hey, why don't you just move out to LA and like just join our program for a few months and let's see where this takes, right? And then- Were you already in LA though before for Riot? Right, I was in uh, uh, for Riot, but that was my internship. So I went back to school oh. to finish my last year, right? So in 2012, I guess that was 2011. So 2012, when I graduated, that was when I was like, had to pick between like, okay, building my own or going back to Riot to work. So I picked the, the, the former. All right. So then what happened? So then I packed up everything in my little Nissan Altima and drove across the country uh, with my friend uh, and uh, co-founder at the time, Joel, who I think you know too. Yeah. Um, who actually uh, quit school um, to join me. He was uh, three years younger than me. I think he was like a sophomore in the undergrad pursuing a CS degree. He was driving his little Mustang and like I was driving my, my Nissan Altima. We stuff everything, in, including our computer tower and like, I don't know, like office chair or whatever. Uh, that was a bad move. I just could have bought one for like 30 bucks or something. But uh, we just drove across the town. You know, we drove three days um, and just uh, kind of like a road trip. And we found an apartment uh, in Mar Vista. Um, it's like a little dungeon with no like sunlight. <laughs> um, and then we you know, I said, you know, Hey, we're going to get into one of these accelerators, you know, give us three months. Um, he was hesitant to join me 
but I, I think at the time, I think he still has this. I, I wrote a $5,000 check to him. I was like, you know what? I promise we're going to make it. If not, you can just cash this check, right? Like this is for three months. And, um, and he, uh, he, uh, um, he, he, uh, he follows suit, which is, you know, uh, crazy to think about, uh, you know, nowadays, but anyway, so we, we, we started, uh, applying to amplify and, uh, we got it. Well, what was his, them. sorry, what was his hesitation? And you were like, oh, I'll just give you, here's 5,000 bucks in case it doesn't yeah. work out and you're right or whatever, then it's fine. But what was he hesitating about? Well, you know, he still want to finish his degree, you know, like oh. in Huntsville, if you, if you finish a CS degree, you almost guaranteed the job. I mean, you guaranteed the job in like an aerospace or, you know, yeah. one of those like telecom companies or tech companies. Um, it is a pretty, you know, tech focused, uh, city. And so mm-hmm. just to give up like a certain, uh, future for something that's extremely risky. And I think his parents weren't too supportive <laughs> of, of, yeah. uh, of, of this move as well. So, uh, but to his credit, I mean, he, uh, he uh, he took on the challenge. Uh, along That's with awesome. Him and my uh, other co-founder, his name is Terry. Um, not to be confused with my current co-founder Terry, but all the other Terry. He uh, was a few years senior than me, but he was he had a cushy government job and he was pursuing master's degree uh, in the same same university. And he also, you know, was supportive. And so, like, um, yeah, we we just said, you know what? Let's give it a try for three months. If we can't get into any of the accelerators, we can't get funding, if we can't get any paying customers, then we just, you know, move back to Alabama, no big deal, um, <laughs> you know, and go work for, you know, uh, the, the tech industry there. And so what, you know, what would be three months turned into, I mean, I, I never left, right, LA. Um, yeah. And so we got an offer from Amplify. At the same time, um, I was introduced to Sam Teller, who was at the time, obviously, you know, running um, Launchpad. Yeah. And he said we're really interested you should talk to this guy. You know, he's also building technology for the restaurant industry. His name is Chris Webb. And he's, you know, building this company called Chow Now. And they're, you know, they're, 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 they're building, you know, they're growing really quickly. And so I did. And he convinced me that, you know, uh, Launchpad is the right way to go. You know? <laughs> um, so, you know, I promptly gave advisor share to Jeff Solomon over at Amplify and turned them down, but joined Launchpad in 2013. Mm-hmm. and uh, started building the first company, which is called Servly. Uh, it was to basically help small businesses. At the time, it was restaurants, but any kind of like Main Street small businesses get customer feedback without you know them having to go to Yelp to rant about it. Um, so yeah, that was the, the kind of like the first venture. So you're in Launchpad for the first go-round, building this startup. And so what are some of the key things you learned during that experience, during that first startup that you were working on? Yeah, so... I mean, first of all, the restaurant industry is, you know, especially selling technology as a restaurant is one of the hardest thing in the world. Like I've, you know, um, I've done enterprise sales, you know, I've done, you know, DTC marketing since then. I'm thinking back, like that was what kind of built, it was a character building experience because I remember walking to 300 restaurants in like the first few, few like two months or something physically, right? Like just, just to talk to the owner. I can tell you like the, the best way to get in touch with the restaurant owner is to walk through the back door. Because you don't have a receptionist who's trained to turn you away, right? Mm. You're going to talk to the kitchen staff who's just like, oh, yeah, the boss is over there. <laughs> so, right. You know, you just walk over there and, like, strike a conversation with the, with, the, with the owner or the general manager and tell them about the revolution in software that you're about to, you know, offer them. And, uh, you know, their eyes glaze over and they don't know what you're talking about. And so, like, that was kind of like the experience for door-to-door, kind of like 
cold prospecting, cold sales, you know, it took a lot of gut. Um, I was yeah. like a very introvert. I'm still very introverted, actually, you know, like I, um, engineer, right. But then I had to learn how to sell and to like get rejected a lot and get turned away. And so I think that was, a looking back, that was a really, really good experience because, you know, I think yeah. startup building is all about sales, whether it's recruiting or fundraising or to your customers. So yep. that was what, uh, uh, I learned in the, in the beginning, building terribly. That's an excellent, excellent um, takeaway and learning how to take your rejection over and over again is definitely an excellent skill and muscle to build, um, especially for fundraising as well. Yes. For sales, yeah. So you got funding from Launchpad, you went door to door to 300 restaurants. Uh, how many sales did you get? Like, did it, did it turn out well? And, and what, it was, what it was happened? Fine. It was good. It was good. We had like maybe like 50 clients, right? So that's not bad for like, mm-hmm. you know, just cold pitching and like closing businesses, you know, yeah. what's that? It's like, like 13% or something. I don't know, 15% close rate. That's pretty good. Um, yeah. So we had some paying customers. Um, and, uh, you know, it was the SaaS model. We we're charging 50 bucks a month and, um, you know, they can get like customer feedback directly. Um, but we quickly found out that connecting, you know, selling to physical brick and mortar was just a slog. Like it's just so inefficient. You know, you just can't, I mean, even if we can sell to all the restaurants in Santa Monica, where, as you know, a launch pad was on mm-hmm. second street, um, how do we then expand beyond that? Like, do we have to hire a Salesforce across the country, right? How do mm-hmm. we go to San Francisco? How do we go to New York, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Um, so we quickly found out that the bigger opportunity or the bigger problem in the industry is to connect technology vendors to these small businesses. So mm-hmm. we were already going beyond restaurants at the time. You know, it was salon spas, boutique stores, um, you know, accountants, law, you know, law offices, et cetera. And so that really um, got us thinking about, you know, well, the, 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 the most efficient way of getting in touch with the restaurant owner or a small business owner is if you have their business card and you know their like personal email and cell phone, right? And you know their name. Um, so when, once you get that information, even when you're calling, when you're emailing, you know, you can basically address them, you know who you're talking to. Mm-hmm. And so we noticed that, you know, we closed our close rates on, you know, people, like when we talk to the owners directly or when we get their information, is much higher than just like a, like a cold walk-in and talking to, you know, maybe their staff. And so that was the insight and revolution um, um, for building uh, prospect-wise, which is what we pivoted to. So it's the same entity, it's still servly. That's why we were in Launchpad twice uh, because the second go-around was maybe, you know, we're solving this kind of like uh, selling software to brick-and-mortar business problem. And so the idea um, at the time, it started as a Craigslist test and you know it's uh, basically uh, we noticed that hey what what if we can actually task people in san francisco to walk the canvas streets and just pick up business cards for us finding out who the owner is at these restaurants and salons right and then so we can then just call them call them up directly over the phone and we can sell them and we don't have to be physically be there but we still need somebody to get the business card information because that's not available online you can go to yelp and google and find out their store hours and like their menu and info at joesrestaurant.com, but you don't know Joe's email or their, 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 their phone name or their, their, their phone number, right? Cell phone number, but their business card has all of that. So it's a treasure trove of information. And so we posted to Craigslist saying like, Hey, you know what? Walk the neighborhood of mission in San Francisco. Uh, we'll pay you for every qualified business card that you collect for us and take a picture and send back to us. We'll pay you a dollar. And as you can imagine, you know, I don't know if you know mission, but like it's very densely packed, you know, little restaurants, stores, and, 
Someone can literally go into like 30 restaurants in an hour, pick up all the you know, business cards from the GM or the owner, and they can upload all of that to me and that's like 30 bucks. Yeah. Right? That's, that's a pretty good way of making money. I mean, not bad. Know, around 13. Yeah. And so we had like over 100 people applying to this job um, <laughs> on Craigslist. I'm like, holy, this is crazy. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that became the next iteration. It's just like a, a, kind of like an offline business intelligence, you know, collection, uh, crowdsourced uh, network um, where we built an app for people to basically go canvas brick and mortar businesses where you literally go walk into the door and collect a business card from them. Sometimes even taking photos, like what kind of point cell system they're using, some of their premises and like, you know, what kind of Wi-Fi they have and basically information that you can't really get from Google, right? We call it like the offline, like uh, uh, intelligence. And so that was what uh, Prosperwise became. And that's what we eventually uh, raised our first uh, significant amount of uh, venture capital to. How much did you raise for ProspectWise? I think the first round we raised $830,000 mm-hmm. uh, from uh, Crosscut, um, uh, from Brian Garrett, um, with participation from some of the, you know, the most well-known Android investors in LA, including Jason Nazar, Brian Lee, you know, uh, nice. Green, um, yeah. you know, and so it was, uh, uh, yeah, that was how much we raised. I mean, yeah. it took us a while. It took me a while. I think that that was actually what then built up to eventual fallout with my co-founders uh, mm-hmm. was that kind of fundraising process, just how long it was and how inexperienced of a fundraiser CEO I was, right? Trying to fundraise and trying to run the business and uh, close, you know, new sales and building a tech at the same time, you know? Um, yeah. What are some of the key learnings that you took from that experience that you know now what not to do? maybe in balancing those two fundraising and, and building a company at the same time. Yeah. So I think that, you know, the punchline there is that I eventually had a really ugly fallout with Joel and Terry. Um, and, uh, you know, and looking back, um, you know, some of the learnings are at the time I thought, you know, Hey, fundraising is the most important thing. You know, I can worry about some of like the team dynamics and culture things later. We can figure out everything later. Um, as long as I have the money in the bank, right? Everything can be, can be, uh, can be, uh, solved. Uh, I don't think so. So that I cannot be more wrong about that because I think, um, most startups fail due to founder fallout. It's not because running out of cash, um, mm-hmm. because with the team intact, you can still brave through any ups and downs in the market, right? As long as you have the will to keep going, even if you don't have you know, the money, um, you can probably, literally just ramen, you know, like just like survive and start building as, as we all know. Um, so that was, that was an important takeaway. So I actually really focused on fundraising. I said, look, let me just focus on this. Like there's some red flags in the, in the team and dynamics and culture fit and all of that, you know, but let me worry about that later. Um, but when we closed the funding and the money hit the bank and literally two months later, we ran into this like ugly fallout where they wanted me out of the company and, you know, I wasn't doing anything for the business besides fundraising. Um, but now, as we know, fundraising is a full-time job, right? But to, you know, to their defense, right, it's also their first time building. And I was pulling a lot of weight on building the product and selling to, to customers. And all of a sudden, I'm not doing that anymore. So in their mm-hmm. mind, it's like you're dropping, you know, your, your ball there, you know, yeah. you yeah. have to do more than just fundraising. 
but we didn't know how hard it was to fundraise, right? It doesn't just come like that. It's not like you set a deadline, it just comes, right? And it is a full-time right. thing. And so I was setting the wrong expectations, right? I was like, oh yeah, uh, yeah, I got that project covered, you know, I, I, and I'm fundraising. But obviously, you know, when I focus on fundraising, I just let that project slide. And so that was a huge takeaway. It's um, uh, expectation setting, right? It's, it's about yeah. letting the, and I was like really confident. I was like, yeah, I'm going to get this done in two months. And it took six, right? And so, yeah. And so it was like, you know, no, I'm, I'm going to get it done next week. No, 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 it's going to be next month. So after a while, they slowly just lose trust in you, right? Mm. And so it's expectation setting. It's, it's about that trust. Um, you know, in hindsight, I should have, you know, managed the expectation a lot better. I should have went to them for coverage, you know, for, for the projects that I wasn't able to work on and, and feel okay that, you know, just focusing on fundraising is valuable enough because, you know, as long as we get this, we can start hiring and then we can, you know, do more. But I have to explain that and like not set the wrong expectation that I'm going to cover all of those things. I'm not going to, I wasn't able to. So I think that yeah. was probably one of the biggest takeaways. And, you know, some other little things like just expectation. Again, it comes to like uh, a goal alignment, right? So I think it was 2015 that we pivoted to ProspectWise and started fundraising and doing all of that. This was like year three for the three of us, right? And so you see a lot of companies in year three that are going to, you know, like, Stress here well, when it comes to like fundraising, all of that. We were kind of still trying to figure out, trying to close that first round of funding. Obviously, it took twists and turns and like pivoting and all of that. So, I was actually yeah. pretty, um, I'm pretty patient, uh, patient as, as a person. Um, but I think Joel and Terry, you know, both due to like Joel literally just like quit school, right? He, yeah, he, he thought he could do this, and Terry quit a lucrative government job, right? So, like there's some financial um, pressure and he was starting a family and all of that. He's a little older than me. And mm-hmm. so for me, I was like, no, I'm just going to, you know, like I'm, I'm going to go in, I'm in this for the long haul, you know, like it doesn't right. matter if we're going to, uh, you know, raise a lot of money at this point, pop or not. I, I want to build something of value. And so there was a lot of misalignment and kind of like where we would see, where we see the, the business and like what the outcome should be. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was another falling out point. So yeah, long story short, it was an ugly fallout. You know, at the time it was, you know, I was depressed. Um, you know, it basically felt like I was, you know, being stabbed in the back by two of my most trusted allies and friends. Right. right. We lived together in the same apartment and, yeah. you know, we drove across the country and we went to so many business meetings together and trying to get, you know, fight for the, um, uh, the, 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 uh, the contracts and building this same, you know, product, you know, day in, day out, um, mm-hmm. going through Launchpad together, you know, meeting some of the same friends, including you, and we're all hanging out together, socialized. And so it yeah. felt really, really, really bad. I, I literally, I think I was clinically like depressed because I just could not, could not go to sleep. I could not eat. My mom had to fly out here <laughs> to Aww. take care of me for a little bit. Yeah. Um, I was in a very messy situation um, for, you know, at least like a few months, like three, four months. Um, but I didn't want to give up because I literally just got funding from. Right. You, know, you have all this cash. <laughs> I have all this cash, but more and more importantly, like, I have the trust of all these investors. You know, right. like Brian was just a champion for me all that time at Costco. Right. Like mm. I was like, you know what, if you want to take the money back, please do like, you know, I'm still going to keep building a company. He's like, Nope. As long as you're in, you know, I, I will not withdraw the cash. So we actually had to lay off our team. The team at the time. I think we had like, I don't know, like 13 people or something. It was a sizable team already. Um, we had to lay off everybody, um, John and Terry, um, I don't blame them. I mean, they, they found another, another job. Um, and, uh, 
But, you know, um, it was easy for me to say, you know, I'm just going to give up and maybe give some of the money back and just start new. And that was something that, you know, a lot of investors suggested as well. But I said, you know, I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to rebuild this. Uh, I'm not going to let any of you down. And so, uh, because a lot of personal money was in this too, right? A lot of angel investors and my mom also put in a little bit of money, right? And all of that. So I didn't want to let any, any, any of them down. And so, um, yeah, I kept at it. And, you know, thankfully, a few months later, I ran into, um, uh, uh, through Investor's Intro to uh, a gentleman named uh, David Cotter. He was a, a co-founder of Amplify as well, but he was building his own incubator, Kazuma uh, Ventures at the time, who then introduced me to another uh, uh, gentleman named Vince Thompson, who is now my mentor, advisor, friend, uh, investor, you know, you name it. But Vince actually joined and say, you know what? Um, I'm going to help you, you know, I like what you're doing. My first job. So by the way, Vince is a, uh, a very, uh, active angel investor advisor here in town in LA. He mm -hmm. was the former executive for, um, AOL, uh, back, you know, at its prime. And then they got approached, he got approached by, uh, Mark Zuckerberg to become their first head of sales. Right. And so cool. he has like accolades in the industry and he's, you know, very successful and, for him to basically talk to me saying like, you know what, I'm going to help you like figure this out. Yeah. He was literally wearing like a Prosperwise t-shirt going door to door with me to try to figure out like, you know, like selling software to, to, uh, to like a vacuum store, on <laughs> in LA. you know, like those are like, you don't, so, so I was really fortunate to have run into David and, and Vince. And then, you know, uh, a little time later I ran into, um, an old, uh, Riot Games colleague of mine, Name's Robin Lau, and uh, he actually worked in the same building as I did, and he was thinking about starting something on his own. And so we were Facebook friends, but we, did, we never knew each other really a lot. And so we got a chatting, and I was like, you know, you should just come help me, you know, be my interim CTO. And uh, you know, we have this incubator, we have this amazing, you know, mentor uh, advisor to help us. I just need some help on the tech side, and you know, this gives you opportunity to kind of explore how you know building startups like from the you know from the inside, and you know, I'll help you kind of like. Uh, figure out what to, what to build for yourself. And so he joined me as kind of like a consultant, uh, you know, just helping me build prospect-wise. And uh, eventually, a few months later, he joined me as a co-founder, as a new co-founder. Uh, nice. And uh, we uh, we built the business basically from the certain death to now uh, profitable <laughs> and growing, uh, you know, profitably uh, still to this day. Um, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, that's all just... Thanks that's to incredible. All those people's support. Uh, it took a long time, but just didn't give up. That's amazing. And that's such an incredible story. Um, I feel like I have a similar story. So I'll <laughs> have to talk about that later where you raise money and then all of a sudden there's, you know, no one else around to help out and you got to rebuild from scratch. I mean, that's a really, yeah. you know, going through such an emotional time and being kind of very alone, like building a yes. company is already alone feeling yes. and to lose your team members, which, you know, two people out of what, like a team of three, that's just yeah. can be a death sentence for several businesses. Um, but you really scooped yourself back up. You did what you had to do to get yourself back out there. And that put you in a position to meet other people that could help you. And that that's an amazing story. So I'm glad to hear that happened. And, um, and so it sounds like prospect is still running today. It is, it is. And, you know, I have all, you know, I have David and Vince and Robin and another friend of mine, Todd, uh, mm -hmm. 
who actually introduced me to uh, uh, Launchpad at the time, now I think about it, uh, to Jamie Ken- Kenkowitz. Uh, yeah. And we just talked to Jamie and, and to, to, to Sam. And so, um, yeah, so these, you know, I would never forget, uh, you know, how, how they reached out and helped me when I was really, really down. Um, you really see the true colors of people and mostly investors when yes. shit really hits the fan. That's yes. like the best. That's when you find out who your favorite investors are. You know, they're the real champions that come behind you and just are like, you can do this. Let's go. Totally. I have a little anecdote and shout out to uh, uh, Nick Green over at Thrive Market. As you know, mm-hmm. he was also yeah. Yeah, our at uh, uh, at the uh, a launch pad. Right. Yep. And so when I was, so he knew he, he, he kind of start helped me kind of like co-found prosper wise, like the, the pivot. And like, he, he knew Joel and Terry and he knew the entire team. And so when this whole thing happened, he was the first person I turned to, you know, it's nice. like, well, you, you know, you know, all of us, like, what do you think we should do? Yeah. And so at the time he actually stayed up like multiple nights like in a row just to help me craft like communication to investors, how to, how to actually move forward. And while I was like, that was already like really moving and touching, right? He was like a uh, small investor and he was like a good friend. But later I found out that, as you know, Thrive Market is a, like a massive company now. Yes. So that weekend when he helped me to draft these letters, like up until like 2 a.m., 3 a.m., was also the same weekend when they, when they uh, just really started blowing up as a company. So they, literally everybody on, on staff had to go to the warehouse and like restock all the, all the, all the items, ship it out. And so like, Amongst all of that, right? Like their business literally grew, I don't know, like 20, 50x. I don't know the, the true number. Mm-hmm. He was still finding the time to help me because he cared about, you know, wow. he kept, cared, cared about me and cared about the, yeah. uh, the relationship. And so that's another, you know, person that, uh, yeah, like to your point, that's when the true colors and like, you know, who your true allies are, who your true supporters are. And it really takes, you know, one of the things, Jake, I want to point out is uh, you have a very strong sense of vulnerability that has allowed you to overcome these things and reach out for help. I think a lot of founders have a hard time being vulnerable because it, it requires someone to say, I'm stuck. I feel like I failed. I don't know what I'm doing. I need help. And that's a really, really hard thing. There's a lot of pride and ego. And, you know, I think other feelings that other founders might be struggling with of like, how do I go to these people who I really know can help me, but they're so in their own, they're doing great with their own business and I don't want to take up their time. Or, you know, I think there's a lot of hesitation that entrepreneurs face with being vulnerable and that prevents them then from getting the help they need to potentially succeed. So what is it about you you think that makes you able to be so vulnerable and, and be able to ask for help when you need it? That's a really good question. Um, I think it's doubly hard for um, tech startups, right? Because mm-hmm. you always have to put up a facade of successful, yeah, like, oh, exactly. you know, how, how's it going? Oh, everything's going well, you know, up to the right. And like, we're you know, killing we're, it. We're killing it, crushing, crushing it. it. Yeah. And because you are afraid that, because you, 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 you kind of depend on, you know, outside capital and support and press yes. and all of that, right? And so, like, yeah. it's so hard to basically be really open and be really vulnerable about it. I mean, in my case, I was kind of like, there's no way to hide that. It's like, literally, shit hit the fan, right? Like, so, like, <laughs> I don't know if you should give me too much credit for, you know, being vulnerable other than, like, I was really just grasping for help. Um, and I was fortunate that, you know, I was surrounded by these benevolent human beings that, you know, just reached out and, and helped me, uh, including, you know, you know, Sam at the time was super supportive. And so um, that was that. But I do think it's important to, uh, to be vulnerable. Um, I think this is a life lesson in general, but 
but you know, maybe just identify the true allies and like people who you, you can really trust, right? Um, and then not be afraid to basically open up with them and yeah. understand that they will have your back, right? Yeah. Yeah. Leap of faith, right? Mm-hmm. So let's talk about your amazing company, Outer outdoor furniture d to c uh let's uh, when did you get started on this idea how did it come up let's dive into that yeah so in the summer of 2016 i took a trip to china to visit uh my cousin's factory um and uh, he's been telling me about his patio furniture factory for the longest time and i did not take any notice of it because i was like furniture Ugh, like how boring is that? Right, right? that's not like, software. That's not software. Like, yeah, I'm building next, you know, like I'm going to change the world here with this uh, software that I'm building, right? Like, right. Forget about furniture. Um, <laughs> but I, I actually, you know, so I actually uh, visited this factory and I immediately I was blown away by just the sheer scale. Like so many people working on the factory floor on this beautiful patio furniture product. It's all hand handmade, hand woven. It's, you know, seeing the physical products being loaded into the containers and being shipped out, and, you know, and then understanding his business more. I mean, he's doing, you know, uh, quite, quite well for himself, just exporting patio furniture to the U.S., uh, Europe, Australia, et cetera. Um, and so I was, I was pretty enamored by it. And, um, and then I, I, uh, I said, well, instead of selling to, um, you know, wholesalers in the, in the U.S., why don't I help you build a little business on Amazon and Wayfair directly? It's the same stuff that you, you're buying from Home Depot and Costco anyway. It's like the cheap plastic flimsy furniture that we all know. Yeah. Uh, I was like, let me do that for you. You know, just like slap it on our own logo and I'll just uh, sell it on Amazon for you, Wayfair for you. Mm-hmm. So I came back to LA over the weekend, um, looked for a warehouse in the city of industry. I had some friends in kind of like in the logistics space. I went on Flexport. Um, and figure out how to import container and, you know, uh, file for customs and all of that. And uh, I built a Shopify site literally in like 12 hours and Photoshop, right, logo. And, you know, lo and behold, the, the first uh, patio furniture business that was going to overtake the world called Auro Furniture uh, was born. Um, so this is before uh, Outer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and then something kind of, magical happen. I mean, like after very soon after the site was launched, a, a buyer from Wayfair reached out um, and said, I want to carry your products. You know, can we talk about just listing your products on Wayfair? I said, sure. Yeah, of course. Like Wayfair, you know, was becoming the, the biggest online furniture commerce platform um, in America. Um, and a few months later, it was live and we proceeded to, to, to do millions of dollars in run rate and revenue. Um, and I was, I was still building prospectors at the time, you know, it was <laughs> yeah. just something that like, it's super passive, just my wife and, and me, like five hours a week kind of thing, you know, just importing the containers, putting in my friend's warehouse and then just like drop shipping for Wayfair. And it became one of the fastest growing, uh, vendors on Wayfair for patio furniture for outdoor living. Wow. And so I was like, holy crap, like people buying furniture online, <laughs> like patio furniture is the thing Then. This was also 2016, so you got to remember that was when I think Dollar Shave Club was about to get acquired, or it was just being acquired in 2017 or something for a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, Casper was like talk to the town; they're going to be mm-hmm. the next, you know, unicorn. Um, obviously, you have like the Warby Parkers, and you know, the uh, Away was getting started, and you know, Opera's was blowing up as well. And so, like, I was like, wow, like the DTC business model makes 
uh, there's something magical about that. Like I got to, you know, learn more about it. And so I concurrently looked into, you know, the furniture business and the DTC, mo- uh, you know, business model and found that patio furniture could be like the perfect fit for that, for that, for that model. And so I reached out to, um, uh, my immediate reaction was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta get somebody who understands DTC really well, right? I have the furniture, I have the, the supply chain, but I gotta get somebody who understands DTC. And so I reached out to some executives at uh, at uh, Casper Cold on LinkedIn. I think I sent out like ten messages uh, to all of their VPs and founders and all of that. Two of them uh, replied. One of them was Terry Lin. He was at the time VP of Product Management at Casper, and literally it was one sentence that was sent on June thirtieth, uh, two thousand and seventeen. And now I remember because it turned out it was actually his birthday. So we just celebrated <laughs> his, you know, three years getting to know each other just like a few days ago. That's funny. Um, and uh, he's like, I never respond to like the messages, but this intrigued me because you have all the keywords. You know, like I'm trying to build a cast for the furniture. I have a family factory. Can you help? Right. But like just one oh, short sentence. He, yeah. Short and sweet. Short and sweet. <laughs> um, never write like a paragraph, more than a paragraph on LinkedIn. Right. Um, yeah. He replied and we proceeded to be, uh, to, to hop on a, hour-long phone call. I flew up to San Francisco, you know, I think very shortly after that. I went on our first date, um, so to speak. And instead of being a mentor or like an advisor, he was like, well, this actually makes a lot of sense. Maybe I can just join you as a co-founder because it turns out before Casper, Terry was the head furniture designer at Pottery Barn. And so I'm, like, I'm, I'm talking to like the perfect person <laughs> That's insane. who understands furniture, who understands how to design furniture. Right? Yeah. Before that, he was like managing a huge piano at Walmart e-commerce, and he's a IDEO trained. Like he, he also worked at IDEO, customer centric design. Talk about like the perfect designer. He graduated from RISD, so like oh my this gosh. kind of like perfect you know <laughs> designer who can really design the best product in the world. You know who is taking a lot of interest in what I'm what what I have to say. Um, and uh, yeah, I and mean, a few months later, you know, we basically joined forces to uh, to co-found Outer. So obviously it's clear his background, his skills, they're all so perfect as a complimentary fit for you to build this type of business. How did you try to kind of like vet or think about, you know, having had your previous experience with co-founders kind of not working out, how did you approach, you know, this kind of partnership differently? Did you guys sit down and say, like, what was your interview process? Or how do you, how would you, I guess, you know, um, advise to the listeners on how to look for um, a great co-founder? What what made you realize this is going to be a great partnership? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I have a lot, you know, a lot of takeaways from my first co-found, you know, co-foundership relationship, and my and my second one with, with Robin, which worked out perfectly, and we're best friends to you know to this day, and our wives hang out together and all of that. Uh, and um, so when I approached Terry, I think it was immediately clear to me that we have um, complementary skill sets. Right. None of it was overlapping, right? Yep. He had this, you know, career in mass retail, in D 2 C, in e commerce, in furniture. Um, I had this, you know, startup experience in fundraising technology, um, you know, um, and so there wasn't any overlap whereas before, you know, my first startup with Joel and Terry, the other Terry, we were all three engineers and we split the ownership three ways, right? We were like, oh, okay, I guess I'll be the CEO, right? I'll go learn how to fundraise, right? But we had to, you know, um, we, we really didn't have complementary skill sets. Um, and so... That was one. Um, 
clear ownership, I think was important. Mm. So I'm not a big fan of like equal partnership splits anymore because, you know, there has to be a, a, like a, a de facto CEO who makes um, decisions and, you know, uh, because chances are, you know, you're going to make a lot of wrong decisions and right decisions, but there's no time to, you know, uh, to uh, debate in, in a lot of cases. And so yeah. you just have to, you just have to go based on the best judgment and information you have at the time. So, you know, that's another thing. So we made sure that there was a, you know, um, I'm the majority owner and, you know, uh, but at the time, you know, I also had the benefit of already having some investor relationship from previously. Right. So Nick, for example, he, based on just an idea, I literally just like told him, uh, you know, over a phone call, he's like, I'm in right? Sam the same way. Uh, yeah. Vince, who was, you know, seeing how was, uh, fighting to save prospect wise also jumped in, you know, like, so I quickly pulled together a $20,000 round from all these like believers yeah. who just said, you know, it doesn't matter what, what you're going to build, but we're it. Right. And nice. so, um, I had the benefit of that. So I can pay Terry a, you know, a livable salary because he has family. He's, you know, mm-hmm. older than me. Um, and so that was helpful. Um, and, uh, yeah, at the end of the day though, like none of the lacking skill sets, but like, a hundred percent overlapping values, right? There you go. So yeah. like we really care about doing the right things. Like we, we really care about building products that truly are differentiated. It's not mm-hmm. about kind of like the quote unquote DDC playbook where you source a product from, you know, a supply chain in Asia on Alibaba and then like hire a package designer to you know put it in a sexy package and like, you know, mock up a, you know, website from, you know, brand agency and then like advertise on Facebook and call that a day. Right. And, and just launch it. <laughs> and, uh, um, we actually said, you know, we have to, you know, take the hard route of figuring out what is broken about outdoor furniture. When it comes to outdoor furniture, it's all about material. How do you actually innovate with material? How do you use synthetic materials like plastic and alloy? How do you make that durable and comfortable, but also eco-friendly? Right. So sustainability, we both look up to the brand Patagonia, right? And we, we just love the philosophy. We love what the, the brand stands for, the products that they make and everything like that. And so like, how do we actually make uh, the plastic fabrics that we have to use for outdoor furniture eco-friendly? So our mission was to create a hundred percent recyclable product, you know, in, in, in the industry where it's littered with just cheap plastic that will just go into the landfill. And how do you actually change the entire experience of outdoor furniture ownership, not just you know, to keep it clean and dry and comfort and all of that, but also the, the buying experience, right? Taking a page from my previous experience of building crowdsource network, um, we, we're building a new network called the neighborhood showroom, which is we're turning our customers' backyards into our, you know, um, uh, crowdsource showrooms. And so community building. And so all of those, we clicked, right? A hundred percent on everything that we, we talked about, um, where he saw the downfall and like the, the shortcomings of traditional retail. Um, especially after COVID, but even before then, you know, since you've seen signs of just um, uh, archaic uh, business models with like brick and mortar shops and pushy salespeople and all of that. And so, so that kind of overlap was just uncanny. It was, you know, um, I didn't have my kid at the time, but he always talks about like, um, how do I leave the world in a better place for my, for my kids to enjoy? Right. And so, yeah a lot of these really shine through and, you know, it was, it was kind of like, yeah, it was so obvious that this, this was going to be the right partner. 
Great. That's really interesting. How long did it take for you to realize that? And did it take a few in-person meetings? I think, was he based in New York? Because Casper's in New York, right? So he's based in San Francisco. Their, okay. uh, their product lab is actually, so he focused on the product innovation part. And like, mm. so he's based in San Francisco. Um, I mean, I met him maybe like three or four times in person. Um, and then we flew to China together to, to the factory to really just like work on the actual, you know, furniture. But it took us I met him in July and then we co-founded the company in November. And so maybe like four months um, to really get to know each other yeah. and to work on the idea. Yeah, That's incredible. And so how big is your team now? And I know you just raised a really exciting round. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, a little bit about outer, you know, we are, we're innovating in the outdoor furniture. I mean, we're trying to build the, the number one outdoor living brand in the world. We're starting with furniture, right? And so we're starting with a sofa product that solves the, we call it the wet bottom syndrome. Um, you know, basically everybody has this experience of sitting on innocuous looking patio set and like the water just gushes out from the cushion and now your pants are wet. So we call it the wet bottom <laughs> syndrome. Um, and That's so, great. you know, we solved that with a, with a, a patented in invention called the outer shell. It's a built-in cover that's part of the cushion itself. And so after you're done using the sofa, you can just pull it over with one hand. When you want to use it in the morning, you know, with the coffee in your left hand, with just one hand, you can open the open it up and just start using it without thinking twice about the ring covers or like lugging the cushions in and out, which is what most people do with patio furniture, right? And so we invested a lot into material. It took us more than well over a year, I think it was 14 months, to come up with our our perfect fabric that's both water, coffee, wine, you know, resistant, uh, mold nice. resistant, all that good stuff. Um, you can literally pour a cup of dark coffee on the white fabrics and it would just roll off and you can just like clean it off with the a little bit of water. Um, and it's super soft. Like it's, it's like cotton. Um, and, uh, it's hundred percent recyclable. So we really, you know, went into doing, you know, product research. So we, we were founded in 2017, November, 2017. We took the last, you know, next year, well, the year building the product itself down to each screw and yarns to the fabrics is proprietary. Nothing's off the shelf. I'm proud to say that. Um, and we launched in May of 2019, um, and so basically, uh, when we launched, it's also, you know, a new product and so, yeah. and it's a patio furniture product. So like if I sell it to someone in Miami versus New York versus Seattle and LA, they're going to have different experiences because they have different climates and weather. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we really took the next seven months, like from May to December, just understanding customers, right. Like calling them up. And if they're in LA, I, I go visit them, help them set it up and like really understanding how they use the product and their feedback. And so we weren't about to just spend a lot of money and just acquire customers. And you know, what if the product just turns out to be crap, right? So right. thankfully that wasn't the case. And uh, in January, we noticed that we had a near perfect MPS. It was near a hundred, um, which is pretty amazing. We did probably yeah. like a little bit over a million dollars in the first like seven months, which is like not bad, but it's not great. Um, but um, we tried out, you know, all sorts of different like marketing channels, acquisition strategies, and uh, started building my team. Right, um, uh, and in January, we you know we knew we had the right ingredients. We hit product market fit because product people really love it. They can't stop talking about it. They, they're commenting on social media. They're recommending it to their friends. Um, and we had the benefit of being on Shark Tank in, in November of last year as well. Uh, that boosted our, our our credibility and awareness as well. So. Timing was a little off because like it's the off season in the winter. If you're in New York and you're watching this show, like you're not thinking about patio living, right? You're not thinking about yeah. furniture. But yeah. besides that, you know, like that, that was a great kind of like introduction of our brand to the world. And uh, 
we uh yeah so we we currently we you know we 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 uh from january to now we're in july right we saw over well over 20 20 x growth we went from tens of thousand dollars per month to now millions of dollars a month and as of april we've hit profitability we're cash flow positive we're no longer dependent on outside capital um but also keeping up this pace of growth and i think that's all thanks to our early investment into the product because it's truly differentiated people love it people can't stop talking about it you know our customer acquisition costs are going to be optimized even more in in march i think our friends and family referral rate was about like six percent we do this like post-purchase survey, like where you heard about us. Mm-hmm. And in June, without introducing any incentives or like a formal program for referral, in June alone, 13% of our orders came from friends and family, which is, you know, pretty amazing for a yeah. bulky item like a sofa. Um, <laughs> right. So that's been really, really exciting. Yeah, we, we recently announced our funding. We raised $4.3 million. And that was from, uh, so Mucker Capital was our first investor. Mm-hmm. Uh, those that's also a group of people that I got to know over the years. Um, I didn't get to work with them at, at ProspectWise, but they're the first people outside of my board and my you know, investor uh, network that I turned to, Will Sue yeah. over there. Um, he's becoming a friend and mentor over the years. And so I really uh, enjoyed his... So when I told him about this idea, he, you know, he jumped at it and said, like, you know, I'm, I'm in. So he was my first institutional lead investor, as well as some, you know, some other uh, VCs in town, Unlock Venture Partners, um, Wavemaker, Reimagine Ventures and all those folks are, you know, have been really, really supportive. And then I also turned to China for the other half of the funding. Um, out of the 4.3, you know, half of it came from two uh, prominent uh, Beijing investors, Plum Ventures and K2VC. Uh, K2VC is actually a venture arm of China Renaissance, the biggest PE arm in, in China. And so wow. they actually are able to give us, you know, a lot of um, advice and support on the supply chain side. And honestly, um, China has been, it's the biggest consumer market in the world. Their e-commerce growth is just out of this world. They think globally, you know, supply chain is so close to the backyard, right? Like it's literally in the backyard. So yeah. they can really, um, they can really uh, think really broad and long about mm-hmm. building a consumer business. So it's, it's been really good to have this mix of like American and Chinese investors to mm-hmm. help us kind of build this next generation brand for our living. That's so cool. Congratulations on raising your round. Um, one thing I'd love for you to talk about is how you're really changing kind of retail. You know, you really are. It's like a futuristic um, way of thinking of, of retail with your, the showroom kind of model that you have. Can you kind of go into how that came about and how that's been going? Yeah, again, like it came, thank you. Uh, I, um, I'm flattered that you say, you know, it's changing retail. Um, we, yeah. you know, it, it, it had a humble goal in the beginning, which is, you know, just serving where, uh, serving our customers, right? We thought mm-hmm. it's a premium product. It's not a cheap product by any stretch of ma- imagination. Right. We're kind of priced between like Costco and RH, right? We're kind of like filling that gap in the middle where you can actually get a really, truly quality product that you can use for years to come without mm-hmm. having to replacing it. Uh, but a fraction of cost of like RH, which is out of reach for most people, right? And so that's kind of like our current target, right? We are going to release the slew of more modern, you know, cheaper products that are more affordable product in the future. But like before $5,000 average order value outdoor sofa, we thought that customers would probably want to see touch and feel before they place the order. Right. And so the idea was really just to, you know, instead of building brick and mortar stores, which we didn't have the money to do at the time, can we actually leverage our own customer's backyard, right? So we're like, hey, you know what? You just bought our sofa, but can you just like, if there's a neighbor nearby that wants to visit and just see touch and feel, would you just let them do that? And 
lo and behold, everybody was all about that. You know, they're like, yeah, of course, you know, backyard. I mean, you know, they can go into my, you know, back door. I don't even have to be there. You know, they can just come in and take a look and, you yeah. know, all of that. And that was just a huge, you know, like surprise to us. But yeah, but that was really natural. It was super organic. They're like, yeah, of course, you know, I, I want to meet these people. I actually, you know, it's a, it's a, I love the social aspect of this. I want to meet new friends. I want to know mm. who my neighbors are, right? I would love to talk about your product. I love it, right? So like stuff like that really, really helped us um, kind of get the, get the ball rolling. Um, we noticed that in the beginning, we thought we had to incentivize um, heavily with financial, like, you know, right. like, oh, if somebody visits, maybe we'll pay you a commission or right. like, maybe give you a fee or whatever. We quickly found out that a lot of our customers are like, no, that's not, not, that's, that's not what it's about, right? I think one of the light bulb moments for us was that when we talked to, when I talked to the CEO of Rover, the Dossing app, yeah. and he was like, you know, the first 10,000 or whatever sitters that we had on our platform are truly pet lovers. They are the kind of people that don't really care about making the money. They donate the money away to shelters and like pet, you know, like charities. And they also the people, kind of people that thought it was cute that a puppy, a stranger's puppy that pooped on their carpet, right? Like they didn't really get mad about that, right? Because it's not about the money. And so for us, it was also the same way. I think we tapped into this desire to share, you know, outdoor living and join this community of like like-minded people who really enjoy, you know, outdoor living. And so um, we quickly, you know, grew to over a hundred showrooms in 80 cities across America. We're on track to build a thousand showrooms in America in the next 12 months, profitably because everybody had to be a true customer. They have to buy the product to be qualified. Yeah, they're not even getting the product for free and they're yeah. doing it. I mean, I, this blows yeah. my mind. I've told it's, you this before. I like, I still don't get it, but it's I mean, fascinating. Do you, do, you, do you have like a product that you just like, you vouch for, like, you got to try this product, right? Like yeah. you got to have this product, right? Everybody has that. And it's like, our sofa is that to them. I mean, they just cannot stop talking about That's it. That's incredible. That's just like insanely incredible, you know, to have that kind of viralness, really. It's like a, it, that's just incredible to have a brand like that. And one of the, the things I, and what you mentioned with your product development, I think that, um, and we kind of glazed through that, but I think the, the reason that you spent so much time on your product and, and making it what it is, I think is really important because I think when you're creating a product, it's so easy to cut corners on your first version. Cause it's like, Oh no, it's, we're going to just test this out first and then we'll do it better next time. And yep. then you're like, let's cut costs here and then cut costs here. And before you know it, you're, you have a product that's not really what you wanted and you're trying to make excuses for how it is. And then you're testing it, but you're not really testing the, the real product that you wanted to get to market in the first place. And it's just so easy to fall off of that vision and just say, I want to get this done. I need to get something out, you know, let's start testing going, but you really went in it for the long haul and refined and made your product what it is now early on to be able to create this kind of cult following essentially, right? These customers in this community that really loves the product because you worked so hard on the product early on. I mean, I can't take too much credit. A lot of that is really Terry's, you know, it's just meticulous, um, you know, uh, focus on the details, right? Literally like every screw on the outer sofa is branded out because that's also our custom screw. You know, look, there was a lot of luck involved because um, one, I had the supply chain, I had the family, family relationship, right? It wasn't, it, it's not going to be as easy if you had to work with a third party who, who's not going to give you the time of the day to kind of iterate with like a hundred different recipes with Alex, right. for example. So that's definitely luck. Um, 
The second is we can't really cut corners with patio furniture. It's like if you're going to tell whether it's good or not within like the first month of use because it's exposed to the elements, right? Like you yeah. literally cannot cut corners. Uh, you got to make sure it doesn't rust. You got to make sure it doesn't deteriorate. You got to make sure it doesn't fade. It doesn't get wet easily and all of that. So like we are forced to have this rigor in making sure that the, the quality is you know, of the highest caliber, right? And you have yeah. to use the highest, highest quality materials and all of that. So we are kind of forced to, to, to do that. But at the end of the day, it's about Terry's obsessiveness about like product excellence. It's about his, you know, it comes from his ideal way of design. Yeah. So we're running out of time. So I just want to ask you a few more questions really quick. Um, as you know, starting and growing a business involves a lot of personal and professional growth. How do you feel you have grown personally as a leader? Wow, that's a deep question. Um, <laughs> look, like the past few months have been, you know, I think it's been, you know, COVID, social injustice, um, having to adjust to a new way of working. You know, that, that in itself is like a you know, nobody teaches you how to handle, you know, all these situations. How do you right. talk to your team about this? How do you like react to the market? How do you like, what do you do? Like, you know, um, right. so that was a, um, but like, over the course of, I think, you know, since, since that first driving across country to LA, you know, in the little Nissan to now, um, you know, there's so many takeaways. Um, I think as a leader, um, I, uh, I need to learn to, I learned to truly trust my team and okay, and recognize that I cannot do everything myself. So if I'm going to go fundraise, then I focus on that because I know if I can't focus on doing that well, then, you know, that allows my other team, team, teammates to focus on uh, what they're doing. But I can't, again, like from that, that first experience falling out, it's like, I just can't set the wrong expectation. Right. So yeah. the trust of the teammates is, is, super important, right? I, I need to trust them to be able to do this. And so thankfully I have a very strong team at, at Outer. And so uh, I'm actually fundraising right now. We're Hopefully we all have some really, really exciting news to share. I think uh, I cannot wait to talk about it. Um, but, uh, cool. uh, you know, so they are actually holding down the fort when, I do, when I'm doing that. So yeah. um, learning to truly let go, right? As, mm-hmm. as, as, a, as a leader is a lot easier said than done. Uh, but I think yeah. I learned, I learned to do that. Um, and what about persistence? Yeah. Um, you know, being persistent, being a founder, I mean, cause you've had multiple different companies, co-founders. I mean, how have you kept going? What is it that keeps you going? Are you like, I'm just an entrepreneur. It's my blood. I can't help it. This is just like all I know how to do or want to do. Or are you doing anything in the mornings or have a routine that keeps your mind on track and focused each day? Like what are some of your maybe personal hacks? You know, I think that looking back, you know, the silver lining for that depression uh, period that I experienced mm-hmm. was that I've seen the bottom. You know, mm. like nothing would ever phase me anymore. Um, yeah. You know, I've seen the worst that way, you know, what could happen. And so right. that's one. Uh, during that time, I learned how to meditate. Um, I, I picked up this book called uh, Love Yourself, Like Your Life Depends On It. It's actually a long essay. It's actually a really good book. I rec- recommend to anybody, but like I learned this technique to like just focus on positive energy and like just be, you know, be, um, be at peace with yourself, right? Another advice that I got from... I think it was Jason Lazar when he was at at, uh, a launchpad. You may be there too. I don't remember this, but he said, uh, um, you know, when you're building a business, it's so hard to 
distance yourself from it because you yeah. kind of like, you know, you, your value, you know, your personal life is kind of like intertwined with the business that you're building. Yeah. And so you got to sometimes just take a third person look, like be objective about, you know, what it is you're, you're building. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's another one. And another one is actually from Launchpad. Wow, like Launchpad really taught me a lot. <laughs> uh, do you remember when like Evan Spiegel came to speak? Oh, I yes, I do. I do, okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah, so like I'm going to reserve my judgment for Snap. Uh, but like for like, the, he, I remember he drew a, a, a chart on the, on the whiteboard. It was like a uh, kind of like a sine wave, right? And then uh-huh. he's like, well, like building a company is like a roller coaster, as we all know, right? Like when you're going up, you, all you see is like unlimited potential. You're going to take over the world. When you're going down, it's like you're going to crash and die by right? fiery <laughs> death. So it's so important that you can just keep like keep your 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 vision and your your focus on just looking ahead and mm-hmm. slightly above, right? But yeah. not be swayed by like ups and downs of that. And so I really took to heart, you know, with that. And so you know, even nowadays, you know, we're growing so quickly. We're pulling together the, the funding. We're building an amazing team. I don't get too over the top of my head and saying like, wow, we're going to dominate the world. I have to think about, you know, what about that downturn that will come when it comes to the economy and all of that, right? When I'm not doing so well, right? I sold out and like, I don't have inventory. Like, I think, you know, I know I I can solve it because we have a product that people really love. And so, um, yeah, so it's about really just keeping that kind of like levelness when it comes to your future and uh, being, yeah, I I think that that's, uh, that's what kept me, uh, going. Yeah. That's awesome. If you could change anything about, um, your path or entrepreneurial journey, what would you have done differently? Um, I mean, I'm really, even like the, I, I I'm kind of lean, you know, I, it's easy to say, I, I wish I would have avoided that ugly fallout, mm-hmm. um, you know, with Joel and Terry. Um, I don't talk to Terry anymore, unfortunately, but I still talk to Joel, you know, um, he's currently in New York, I think from time to time. And, you know, uh, obviously we're not the best friends anymore, but like, you know, it's kind of like water on the bridge. And, um, I learned a lot from it. I grew from it. I'm sure he did too. And so mm-hmm. it's probably easy to say like, I want to change that. So maybe we can, you know, build a business a little bit differently, but I feel like it was important that when it happened, uh, when it did, because I learned so much from it. Um, so if anything, maybe, you know, I wish I could have, um, made that experience less, negative for everybody that was involved um you know because it was truly truly hurtful for for myself and a lot a lot others um but besides that you know um i yeah i've I've just enjoyed every second of it i mean i I really love the the journey so far and can't wait to see you know what outer is going to become in the next few years me too um real quick what's something you think most people don't know about building a business maybe it's assumptions people make about what it takes to build a business or yeah yeah fundraising fundraising is not as glamorous as it seems right like we made an announcement <laughs> like two weeks ago but we actually closed that round like a few months ago right like there there is a people congratulating me about the round and that's really nice but like it's like you're diluting your company right you have to depend on the on the outside capital to build something. Right. I'm not saying that in a negative way. Like we're right. getting the right partners in place to help us build, you know, kind of make the kick bigger is the saying, right? And so that's the right, right, uh, you know, right way to go if you surround yourself with the right investors. But like fundraising, like the TechCrunch, you know, headlines are just not as glamorous as it seems. And yeah. you know, usually if you see that like huge round has happened, they probably mm-hmm. spent like half of not more like them, all of it. <laughs> like that's one. We are fortunately not in that in that position, but like you know, that's just typical. Um, and so 
um, really just think for, I think just for the health of, of, of our own business and like focus on what matters for the long run instead of for these like flash in the pan moments. I think that's something that, uh, yeah. you know, I still, I still invest in a lot of first time founders and like I do a little bit into investing on the side. And so, um, that's something that that could get over the top of some people's heads. Yeah. That's why I try to do this show, you know, so we can talk about the real stuff that goes down. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> I, I think that's a sorely missed voice in the industry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jake, thanks so much for your time. Do you have any final advice you'd like to share with entrepreneurs? I know that you've already, you know, shared so many incredible insights, but for anybody who's thinking about building a business out there, do you have any other final words? I didn't know I was going to build a furniture business. Like that's the last thing I would, I would think about. Um, um, but, you know, I saw the opportunity, you know, I, I met the right people, the right resource in place. Um, and ultimately I found something that I feel really passionate about when it comes to, you know, changing how, how retail is done and building a beautiful product and beautiful brand to capture this, you know, um, and, you know, uh, inevitable trend of outdoor living. And so like, sometimes it takes a little bit to really get to know your own business, why you're doing it. But once you find that true calling in that mission, it feels great, right? Everything you do is so natural. Um, so yeah, so I guess the, the common wisdom is like, you know, don't start something for the sake of starting something. But sometimes, you know, you can take some science and like start working on it. Maybe you just learn to love the industry and, you know, you, you're going to get a lot out of it, you know, more than, more than you, what you know. So I, I think it's a balance of that. Yeah, it's incredible how things unravel, you know, mm -hmm. like who would have thought you'd be building outer coming from having done restaurant business stuff with Prospect <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's wild. That's right. Well, Jake, thanks so much for sharing your awesome story. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Lee. It's been fun. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.